Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. If you would, please go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word. We're in our final look at the Gospel according to Luke, his fourth chapter. And we've already seen the work of the Master and how He was received. If you'll remember, in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus was in His home synagogue in Nazareth. And as a traveling rabbi, as an itinerant rabbi, it was his custom to visit the local synagogue, to worship with them. And as an honored guest speaker and an honored guest teacher, he would sit in Moses' seat and they would learn at his feet. What a marvelous blessing that would have been to have learned at the very feet of not only a master teacher, but he who wrote the scriptures in the first place. But when he went to his hometown, he, did not he was not received well because he detected on their hearts that they were looking for more divinely themed entertainment. They wanted the signs, they wanted the wonders, but they did not want the prophecy that was underneath it. Remember, the signs and the wonders are not the point. The word of God is, and the signs, the wonders, what we today would call miracles, were the verification that this person was anointed by God for this purpose. And he was rejected, he was cast out, he was almost thrown over a cliff in his own hometown. And then he received quite another reception at the synagogue in, in Capernaum, the place that was close by to Nazareth, the large city of the, era, of the area, but the place where uh, he resided, presumably with the apostle Peter, his wife and his family as, as they gathered together. That was his missionary center, for lack of a better term, when he was ministering up next to the shores of the Galilee. And when he did the same thing, when he read a text at the synagogue and when he was about to give the, the sermonic exposition, a demon rose up and accused him of coming to destroy them, of bringing the day of the Lord early. And he tried to rouse the congregation on the opposite side for fear of the judgment of God. But instead of everyone siding with the demon, when Jesus had healed that member of that congregation, they saw the sign and wonder, and that opened their hearts to receiving the Word of God. Now as we take a look at the bottom of the chapter, let's begin our reading with verse 38. If you'll join with me, please. When you get there in your copy, please say amen. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Now remember that in this particular era, 
a regular fever was a sign of a major cause for concern. They didn't have Tylenol at this time. They had a form of aspirin. They didn't have antibiotics. So when someone ended up with a high-grade fever, as is the case here, it was almost the prelude to a death sentence for them. So they reached out to somebody who, who knew them personally that was fully capable of handling the situation through faith. Verse 39, so he bent over her and rebuked the fever. I want you to see the way that that's phrased. You can rebuke a demon. Demons have personalities. They have intellects. You can rebuke another human being for the same reason. But rebuke a fever? How does somebody argue with a fever? How does somebody stand in the wind and argue with the sea? Nevertheless, we have to remember that this is the, the, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the person who crafted all that is. For with Him everything was made, and without Him nothing was made. So if this were, for instance, if this were a high-grade fever prompted because of a bacterial infection, who made the bacteria? Therefore, who had the divine power to say, out of her? He rebuked the fever. Through the word of God, she was healed. He bent over and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. So not only did her temperature drop, but she regained so much strength that she was able, probably with a lot of praise and thanksgiving in her heart, to go into the kitchen of their family home and to prepare a meal. And mind you, this is no small feat. Remember that in this culture, these were not single family homes as we have the habit of thinking. For when someone gets married, chances are, well, no, in this culture, if somebody gets married, the husband-to-be appoints a section of the house so that the soon to the presumptive um, husband will build an addition to that house. And Peter had a brother, Andrew. So this was a multiple, this was a multi-family dwelling. And Peter's mother-in-law would have then had to feed Andrew and his family. He would have had to feed Peter and his family. And here's the get, uh, house guest of Jesus who they were probably giving boarding room to. So she's, she the, the presumption is that she had so much praise and thanksgiving in her heart and had received so much strength from the healing power of this rebuke that she was able to fix a pretty substantial meal for the entire household. Verse 40, at sunset the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses. The word spread fast. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. Same trick. Same tactic. Try to reveal Him as the Messiah before His time. Try to point out who He was before, before the day of Palm Sunday, before He was supposed to fulfill that which was prophesied by the prophet Daniel, before He was to declare this version of the day of the Lord, which was the redemptive work of Christ. 
tried to wrap them into a fury so that they would think that instead of bringing God's grace, he was bringing God's judgment. But it, turned, it backfires on them. You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. I want you to notice the contrast here. In his hometown, he was rejected. In his hometown, the people that knew him, that loved him, that had cared for him, the children that had played with him as a youngster, his own brothers and sisters presumably, they rejected him outright. When he calls them out for the condition of their hearts, instead of receiving the word of God willingly, in pride, they recall all the stories of days past. Isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know all the stories about him? Who does he think he is? But he goes to this strange village, this strange city. And through the word of God, through his healing ministry, he draws attention to a new reality. See, the miracles, as we discussed last Sunday, the miracles, the miraculous were put in place to identify somebody as being anointed of God. In fact, this, this is what drew, um, drew us to have the most famous verse of the Bible. This is what drew Nicodemus to Jesus' side. Nobody, we know that no one could do the things that you do if they did not come directly from God, which is what him, prompted him eventually to call out Nicodemus's heart and to say that the thing that you're curious about is one, a person has to be born again, and this is how. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but what? But have everlasting life. The fingerprints of God, fallen a prophet, and a prophet's message as a sign to those in that prophet's hearing, through the work of the signs, the wonders, the miraculous. So Jesus uses this to bring a, a, a giant sign to signify the gospel that he is about to preach. And they fall in love with him so much that as he was trying to escape the crowd, to go by himself, to pray, to meditate, to connect with the Father. Which is an important thing for all of us to do. All of us should have a quiet time, but that's another sermon. This is Jesus' example. He needed that moment, and so do we. But while he was engaged in his own quiet time, while he was in communion with the Father, the rest of the village tried to hunt him down to receive his wisdom, to receive his healing touch. They fell in love with him because he loved them. Through his compassion, he drew attention to the gospel. And I want you to notice that pattern because it's a, it's a continually repeating pattern. When a member of the body of Christ, after him, loves somebody else, 
in the name of Christ. It draws attention to the fact that Christ makes a difference. And when that attention is garnered, the message of redemptive salvation can then be applied. It's something that we tend to forget. How often is it that, that this church and some of our sister churches do these wonderful things and when somebody is curious about what makes this person who is giving, this person who is loving, this person who remains unrattled by the condition of this world, when they approach us to ask us what makes us better, what makes us different, what makes us kind, do we always have the courage to say, the difference is Jesus? Missions and evangelism are not counter to each other. They're two sides of the same coin, and that's something that we need to remember. Jesus does this multiple times. He goes out, he commits these wonderful works, these brilliant signs and wonders, to feed thousands, to heal those of incurable diseases, to, to rid people of demons, as we talked about a couple of Sundays ago. He does all these wonderful works. And he still confronts them with the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We think of the woman at the well episode, where he reveals to her uh, her sin through a prophetic message. And he promises her the gift of a well springing up with her without end. And he confronts her with the sin, but he also offers her the remedy of salvation. Through gentleness, through kindness, and through love, he converts somebody, not only that somebody, but as we found out, a whole city of Samaritans, the ancient enemies of Israel. Those that are thought of as subhuman by the Jews. They become part of his circle. Kindness plus the gospel. They come to him. They beg him to stay. Verse 43, But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He never loses focus on his ministry. And he kept preaching on the synagogues of Judea. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. There are four basic functional ministries of every local church. Our ministry to God through worship. Our ministry to each other through discipleship and fellowship. Our ministry to the hurting. Through the world, in other words. Through missions. And our ministry to the lost through evangelism. All four must be in place and all four must be in balance for a church to truly be a church. Otherwise it becomes... A reductionist model, it ends up becoming a parachurch ministry more than an actual functioning local church. And right here in this pericope of Scripture, we see Jesus at work, finding a balance in his own ministry as a traveling rabbi between missions work and evangelism, calling others to the saving good news of the gospel. Now, he hasn't been declared the sacrifice yet of God, but he is calling attention to himself. So when the cross takes place... When he gives up the ghost, there are people ready with the, with the fertile ground of their hearts prepared to receive that gospel once it has been given. And he, he begins this ministry, and I want you to see this pattern. He begins this ministry first with, with missions work, 
missions work you can think of as the two great, the, the latter two of the great commandments. Love thy neighbor as thy self. And love one another as I have loved you with the emphasis on they will know you are my what? Disciples, they will know you are Christians. They will know you are of Christ. They will know the difference that God has made in your life. If, you, if they see and hear and experience you loving one another. But that begins by taking care of immediate needs. Remember the apostate emperor of Rome when he wanted to start, restart the persecution of Christians decided toward the end of his life on this world. I can't do it because they're doing more for the people of the empire than I'm capable of doing. John, uh, excuse me, the, the Apostle Paul corroborates this in several passages, but I want to call your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he writes, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's using a, an example of love as he's going from local church to local church, from city to city, trying to, to get them to give and give generously for a famine that has beset the churches that are rising in Israel to send money and support back home. Verse 2, in the midst of the very severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on her own, their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. In other words, work not, because, uh, <clears throat> not, work not to get saved, but work because you are saved. Because of the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know, this is how you set the benchmark. Are you doing what you know that you're capable of doing? When you look around the region and you see other churches that are in a similar state to you or in a lesser state than you, are they doing the work of offering care, offering support, offering love, offering compassion, offering charity of, of the generosity of your spit, yourself? Are you offering what you can offer and then some, one, to the glory of God first, and second, to the relief of those who desperately need your help? Because this is how we attract attention to God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich as the prince of the universe rich, yet for your sake he became what? Became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Work out of thanksgiving for the gospel that you have received. Work because we are mandated to be those who draw reconciliation between God and mankind. 
work because through that work we ourselves become conformed more and more to the image of the Son of God. This is why, and work, because again, through your love demonstrated to others, those others will come to realize that God loves them. Very pervasive in our society is the concept of a judgmental God, a God who, similar to Zeus in the Greek pantheon, is sitting on his cloud, uninterested in the well-being of the people of earth, waiting for them to mess up so he can strike them with a bolt of lightning. Is that an image of the God that we serve? Is God's only purpose with us to put us through some kind of spiritual test to declare us unrighteous and then to get rid of us? That's the image that so much of this world is convicted under right now. Whether or whether or not they, they try to dismiss it from their own being, they know that there's a creator. For all creation attests to the fact that there is a God, Romans chapter 1. So even though they might dismiss it from their minds, even though they might deny it, even though they might protest against it, the knowledge is still there. The question is when they formulate this idea of the Christian God, what kind of an image do they have and how can we counter what the enemy has inspired them to think? The only weapon that the Christian has above any other is love. But it's a powerful weapon. It is a truly powerful weapon. For those of you who have ever experienced loss, for those of you who have ever experienced trial, for those of you who have ever experienced a moment in your life when you thought the world was coming to an end and yet you had that call on the telephone, you had that person draw next to you and listen, you had another human being to reassure you of the love of God, was that not a blessing that made a difference? We have but one weapon. The reflection of the love of God. But it is a powerful weapon. Now, I'm not dismissing Scripture, and I'm not dismissing the Holy Spirit being part of us, but that's, that's another emphasis. What we do, the way that we live our lives, through our conduct and our conversation and our character, as, as Paul himself declares, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Matthew, excuse me, Jesus through the pen of Matthew declares, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, in other words, if the Christian loses his testimony or her testimony, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown as trampled underfoot. It's just a rock. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to the entire house. This is the way that Jesus exemplifies the love of the Christian along with the testimony of the Christian, the lived ministry of the Christian, in other words. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Notice the linkage with works, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The love of God put on display brings glory to God by you 
and causes others to do the same. How do we draw someone to the Word of God? How do we draw somebody to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God? How do we proclaim an invitation by loving those who have yet to come to know Him in a free pardon of sin? Not as the other, not as the next door neighbor of the church, but as someone who is made in the image of God, a potential brother or sister in Christ, someone who needs the Scripture, who needs the Spirit, and is drawn to them by the love of those that already possess them. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We've talked about meeting the basic needs, the essential needs, the, the practical needs. Now let's talk about the eternal need. When, when what we do can be used as an invitation to bring someone else into a relationship with God, it's important that we recognize our place in that ministry. Romans chapter 6. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. In other words, when you, were, when you were chained into the Adamic nature, when you were a person who was condemned in sin, there was nothing that you could do to bring glory to God because you were outside of that capability. A person cannot please God unless they're a regenerate Christian. What benefit did you reap at the time when the things that you are now ashamed of, those things that result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and become slaves or servants of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus makes the difference. By loving others, we have a ministry of reconciliation that we're going to talk about in just a second. But that reconciliation begins with loving others in the name of Christ. Meaning whenever we have a visitor that comes in these walls, be it in this room, be it in the parlor, be it in the, 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 the fellowship hall, be it in the youth room, be it in the gymnasium. We are blessed with the ability to stand as a center for community gatherings here. We are blessed with the opportunity to do some really good ministry work here. The question is, and this is vital, how are we at actually loving them in developing a relationship with them? How are we in loving them by meeting their, their physical needs? How are we in loving them by making them feel welcome, by making them part of the family? If someone joins us because they're invited, do we sit with them? Do we talk to them? Do we get to know them? Do we begin the initial seeds of developing a relationship with them? If someone joins 
uh, us for the men's breakfast, or if they join us for the, the women's gathering, or if they join us to meet with the youth, or they join us because they find out about the other discipleship opportunities that we're presenting. Do we take the time out to learn their name? Do we take the time out to see how they're doing, just to ask, is everything all right? And then to take the next step to say, we'd love to have you here. Do we develop a relationship with them? Do we make them feel welcome? Do we give them the ministry of reconciliation, which is evangelism? That is to say, if you don't have another church home, or if you don't yet have a relationship with Christ personally, we would be more than happy to take you in take you under our wing, to re recognize you as a family member, to introduce you to that person who made such a difference in our lives. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Is he pointing to pastors only in that? Is he pointing to the deacon ministry only in that? Is he, appointing, is he talking just about ordained people? Who now has the ministry of reconciliation that Christ began all those years ago? Each and every one of us. This is our ministry together. That we are co-laborers in bringing that reconciliation that Christ offered because he, was not, he did not spare himself. But out of a, a fierce, passionate love for everyone who would only believe. He gave himself so that those that would be drawn to him, might receive a reconciliation with God, a reconciliation that cannot be ended. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed, aren't you glad that that verse is in there? And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's what? Ambassadors. We are workers representing royalty who are in the enemy's camp trying to rescue them from the destruction that is about to take place. We are pleading, we are making the offer of reconciliation, of rescue that is right there. We are making his appeal through us. He is making, God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. This, this is the gospel in one verse. Transposition. He who was perfect was in a moment in time declared by God to represent all sin, all unrighteousness. And he was made to drink the cup of God's wrath. His righteousness 
was then taken and applied to our account. So when God, the judge of all that exists, looks at you on that last great and glorious day, by ministry of reconciliation, what we mean is Jesus took the punishment that was due our account. Every sin that we've ever committed, including the sin nature itself, the wrath of God was applied to him. He paid our price. To Telestai, paid in full. The last word from the cross. So that when he looks at each and every one of us, he doesn't see that sin. He doesn't see the stain on the clothes that we're talking about now in our Revelation study. All that he sees is his child, made in his image, declared innocent, declared righteous, declared his heir. This is what Christ offers to you. And you are the instrument through which God makes that offer to all that come into contact with you. Remember, the state of West Virginia right now, according to the most recent census, Kanawha County in particular, of any 10 people that you now see, down, see walking down the street, eight of them do not consider themselves Christian. Eight of them do not have a church home, a church family. That's a mission field ready for harvest. And this is a place that needs some real ministry. It's a place filled with broken homes, broken families, full of hunger, right now full of cold. A place full of people that this world has turned their backs on. So as the body of Christ, our challenge is to serve as a physical and living reminder that God has not turned his back on them. That God still loves them and is offering them that love for free. You are blessed with the opportunity as the ambassador of Christ who, who is carrying his name with you to make that plea of reconciliation. Be that minister that Christ has called each and every one of us to be. Be the one who makes the plea to others for salvation and sanctification. Be the living reflection of God's love to a world that doesn't know that love. This is our challenge. This is our ministry, our mission. Know Christ and what? Make Christ known. And all God's people said. The Heavenly Father, as we end the service of the word and proceed to the time of invitation, if there are any within the hearing of this message, that have themselves yet to come to know you. In that, recon that reconciled relationship, 
Lord, let this be the day of someone's salvation. Let this be the day when they would put aside the things that are old and accept the things which you provide that are new. Let them be loved by you. Let them embrace you. Lord, draw to this table all that you would. And we ask for your mercy upon our community. We ask for, all, for mercy for all those, Lord, who need your special touch. And for any other, for those that are being weighed down, uh, Lord, for those that are, are troubled by what is going on in this world, for those who are in danger of losing that sense of their joy, that sense of their peace. Whatever the situation is, Lord, whatever the prayer need is, whatever, uh, let them come now and receive your embrace as we open the table to you and to them. Join with us now. Bless this time. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.